0: Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. We're in week 10 of this series, The Kingdom is Here. Uh, We changed that from last uh, fall, where we called it The Kingdom is Near, where we've been walking through the book of Nehemiah. So if you are new with us this morning, we are excited to have you. Even if you're joining us for the first time online, we're excited and honored that you chose to worship with us this morning. Uh, We have been in the book of Nehemiah for quite some time. In fact, this is week 10 of our series. And so if you want to grab your Bible or on electronic device and go ahead and open it up to Nehemiah chapter 6 today you <laughs> The Old Testament, New Testament, two parts of the Bible. You're going to look into the Old Testament. If you find the book of 2 Chronicles or Ezra, uh, if you'll go just to the right of that, you'll find Nehemiah. If you find the book of Job or Esther, you're going to go back to the left and you're going to find the book of Nehemiah. As you're turning there, uh, in the seats around you is our next iteration of our prayer guide. We started handing these out last fall and inviting you to join with us in praying and preparing for what God is calling us to this year, and uh, Lord willing, as we finish up this series next month we will step into that and so we're inviting you to continue to pray with us so you can grab one of those prayer guides it's also available digitally uh, for those joining us online you can grab it off our website and again join us as we continue to pray for God's leading and God's work all right, chapter 6 today. Last week we looked at chapter 5. And chapter 5 was all about this opposition that was within the family of God as they continued to build the wall around Jerusalem. And we walked through Nehemiah kind of dealing with the family problems, uh, the opposition within the family last week. And we saw the family of God respond in, in a way that was breathtaking, in a way that brought God glory, and they served one another. It was truly the unity uh, of the people by the Spirit, of God, and and that's what we witnessed last week. And now we move into chapter 6, and the truth is, trouble is never far away, right? And especially in Nehemiah, it certainly is never far away here. And here it comes again, the enemy comes again with an attempt to manipulate, an attempt to attack, to intimidate Nehemiah here as we get into chapter 6. And for those who are disciples of Christ, if you are a disciple of Jesus, a believer in Christ... The enemies of God are are our enemies, and kingdom work brings out kingdom enemies. We see it throughout Scripture, and we're especially seeing it here in the book of Nehemiah. And those kingdom enemies are willing to try all tactics to stop, to destroy the work of God within and through His people. And we're going to witness that here in chapter 6. And hopefully, what we have been seeing, and maybe it will become clear today... Through the book of Nehemiah and God's people is perseverance. It is this needed part of our life? This needed strength that we have, empowered by God in His Spirit, this desire and need to persevere through all things, not in our own strength, but through the strength that God gives us in His Spirit. And up to this point, I mean, we've seen Nehemiah face mockery. He's faced ridicule. Uh, there's been confusion. There's been threats. Etc., etc., disunity, all those things. But perseverance is to be our lesson today as we look at chapter six. Paul would tell us in the New Testament to continue to run the race, fight the good fight of faith, take hold of the eternal life, right? Persevere. It is a it is a theme, actually, within scripture in Old Testament and New Testament. Persevere. Just because we have our lives secure and safe in Christ doesn't mean that it becomes easy or simple. In fact, it might even get a little tougher. And so perseverance is going to be really important. And three lessons we learned here, and here's the first one. We're going to watch Nehemiah persevere through distraction. Perseverance through distraction. So join me, Nehemiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Now when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem the Arab and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and that there was no breach left in it, although up to that time I had not set up the doors in the gates. Samballat and Geshem sent to me, saying, Come, and let us meet together at Hakafirim in the plain of Ono. But they intended to do me harm. Verse 3, And I sent messengers to them, saying, I am doing a great work, and I cannot come down. Why should the work stop while I leave it and come down to you? Verse 4, and they sent to me four times in this way, and I answered them in the same manner. Now, Samballot, Tobiah, and Geshem are familiar people to us. We've met them before in chapter 2. And what we have here is we've got three would-be politically ambitious, if you will, rulers to the north and to the east and to the south-southwest, basically surrounding Jerusalem where Nehemiah and the people are building the walls, right? They have nothing in common, these three. They have nothing in common except for the fact they don't like what's going on in Jerusalem. They do not like Nehemiah. They do not like to see what Nehemiah is doing or what they see as as what they interpret as Nehemiah's own political ambitions. And so in that, it's like the enemy of my enemy is my friend, right? And so in that, they've now come together as this, some commentators call the unholy trinity. The unholy trinity for the purposes of bringing down Nehemiah and stopping the work of God. Those threatened in power will do whatever, drastic things to keep their power. If their identity is in power, they will do anything to keep that power because that's where they find their identity. And that's what we see happening within this chapter with these three again. So Nehemiah is invited to Ono. And Nehemiah says, oh, no, let's get that out of the way. Just get that out of the way and move on. Every commentary I read said that, gave that joke. They invited Nehemiah to what you might call a political summit. One of the things that we recognize here is that they've realized in an attempt to appeal to his vanity and his pride, they've realized that Nehemiah has actually succeeded at doing something they tried to stop back in chapter 2. And so they've kind of shifted the tone of their uh, desire, the letter to meet with Nehemiah where before it was true intimidation. Now it's like, well, we're pretty proud of you and you should be proud of what you're doing. So let's come together and kind of have this summit, this political summit and have this agreement built out between us. And it's a deliberate attempt to try to appeal to Nehemiah's vanity, believing that he had the same vanity that they did. Uh, Nehemiah's sense of pride like they had in their own uh, authority of power in the, in the areas that they ruled. But Nehemiah says, rather, though you intended to do me harm, they intended to do me harm. Now, where they were calling him to, Ono, oh uh, if you were to look it up on a map, there, this was a hostile area, actually. If he were to go to it, many believe it wouldn't just be a distraction. It probably could lead to death. And so Nehemiah recognizes that. But they asked four times. Like, it's worth noting here in verse 4 that Nehemiah tells us they sent to him four times. And four times he answers the same way. He didn't deviate. He persevered through their continued requests to come and have this meeting. And here's what he said to them. Look at, verse, look at it again. He says in verse 3, I am doing a great work. I'm doing a great work. And the question we ask is, why is this a great work? Archaeologists believe that the wall that was built during Nehemiah's time wasn't that great of a wall. It actually wasn't as great as some of the other architectural finds that they found during that time frame in history. But what is the great work that he's talking about? What is this great work? Simple. It's great because it's God's work. That's what makes it great because God's great, his work is great. And so Nehemiah and the the family of Israel, God's family coming together made it, A great work because it was God's work. Many commentators believe this wasn't just a rebuilding of the walls. This is a rebuilding of God's people. There was something even greater at work here. This is a part of what God is doing in the history of redemption. To assure his promise that Jesus Christ will come and save sinners. The restoration of the people of Israel was a promise that God made. Again, validity of Scripture. If you go back through the Old Testament, you'd see these promises that he made. It was a part of the promise that will eventually lead to a king coming to them whose name is Christ, Jesus. And Nehemiah knows he is involved in a great work. And that's what he says. He says, I am doing a great work. In the New Testament, Satan used every one of these tactics that we see here in chapter 6... In this passage with Nehemiah he used every one of them in the New Testament against one far greater and far more faithful than Nehemiah. I mean, for Nehemiah, this, this moment of perseverance, this preserving courage is a little picture of Jesus who will be much more faithful in the future. There's a verse in the Gospel of Luke that commentators call, more or less, it's the hinge of the Gospel, it's the heart of the gospel where everything changes. Is at this moment in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, that everything changed. And here's what he wrote. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. He's talking about Jesus. Jesus set his face to do the great work. He set his face on the great work that God had given to him. He set his face... To do God's work, which was great work, was for us. He set his face to to go to the cross. He set his face on the cross. And from that moment forward in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus set his face to do the work that God the Father gave the Son, our Savior, to do. And he would persevere through all the distractions, all the false accusations, all the stuff that we see here, he's going to persevere to the end, praise God. Do you know that this is the great work, that Jesus has come to save sinners? That's the great work. To save sinners, to build his church, that is the great work. This is the great work. My question is, do we believe this? To save all for eternity, to save sinners, not change our circumstances, but rather to save us over them. This is more important than the work of our kingdom. Nehemiah understood that. That's our heart. I think it's easy for us in the Christian life to get sidetracked, to waver between building of our own kingdom and the building of God's kingdom. Our heart is to see God's kingdom grow and expand, which is what we believe God's leading us to in this new season of our church. That it would grow... And the conversion of lost into saved, from those who are far from home to come home, and to be secure in their home. That's the great work. I'm doing a great work is what Nehemiah says. Let's ask ourselves. Let's ask ourselves, when was the last time? When was the last time I said what Nehemiah said? When was the last time you and I said what Nehemiah said? it's the work of God's kingdom it's God's work do you believe you are involved in the greatest work under heaven which Jesus gave to us in the New Testament the making of disciples as a disciple we are called to make disciples that's the great work it's not great to the world the world doesn't see it as a great work just like the world here in Nehemiah's time didn't see what he was doing as a great work Some, as we've seen here, see it as a threat. Some today see the work that God's given us to make disciples by sharing the grace-filled message of Jesus Christ as a threat. It's God's work. It's the greatest work. It's greater than the world. This is how you interpret your life. This is how you see your life. Day in and day out, wherever you may be, wherever God has placed you, whatever that area and circle is, whether it's work or home or neighborhood or recreation, wherever you are as an ambassador of the gospel, as a minister of reconciliation, bringing grace, bringing truth. This is how we see our lives. This is how we interpret our part of the story. I'm doing a great work. Was the last time we asked ourselves that question? When have we said that about what God's called us to do? And the truth is, for us to continue to do that, it's going to take perseverance through the distractions that will come. That's our first lesson. Here's our second one. Perseverance through false accusation. Look at verses 5 through 9. In the same way, Ballot, for the fifth time, sent his servant to me with an open letter in his hand. In it was written, it is reported among the nations, and Geshem also says it, that you and the Jews intend to rebel. That is why you are building the wall. And according to these reports, you wish to become their king. And you have also set up prophets to proclaim concerning you in Jerusalem. There is a king in Judah. And now the king will hear of these reports. So now come and let us take counsel together. Verse 8, then I sent to him saying, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. For they all wanted to frighten us, thinking their hands will drop from the work and it will not be done. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. There's an escalation here. It moves beyond just a letter asking for a meeting in a hostile territory to now a letter To him again asking to meet, but also, by the way, there's now another letter, there's another accusation here, a false accusation that that is that you are going to overthrow the king. So it's escalating here, right? We have to learn perseverance through false accusation. Nehemiah was right to distrust these men, especially now as we see this fifth invitation as it accompanies, as it comes with this letter. A letter that says in no uncertain terms, again, that he's going, that Nehemiah is plotting to overthrow the ruler or the king. If you're a leader of any type, if you've been placed in a position of leadership of any type, it can be hurtful and it can be challenging in that season of leadership when there is an accusation that isn't true. People tell lies, bring false accusation. People who have find their identity in things of the world will do anything, like I said earlier, will do drastic things to keep that identity intact, even to make up things that aren't true, and to make those up and to spread those in an attempt to attack and to hurt and to distract. Unfortunately, once some people hear those lies, false accusations, some believe it no matter what is said, no matter... How innocent or how much the truth is then presented, some are going to believe those lies. Some, no doubt, believe these lies about Nehemiah. These seeds of doubt were being sown among the people of Jerusalem as this other attachment to the letter for a meeting has now come. And they're asking themselves, well, what truly is Nehemiah's ambition here? But we know based off Nehemiah's response, and we know based off what we've studied there, this was far from the truth. This was a complete fabrication, right? Nehemiah wasn't attempting a coup of the king, right? He wasn't attempting to be king. He had none of that as a desire. In fact, he was working at the king's command. If you go back to chapter 1 of Nehemiah, you'll remember his interaction as a cupbearer to the king of Persia. His interaction with the king and the queen. And the king gives him permission. And he's working on behalf of the king's commission. In fact, the king gives him letters He has the blessing of the king. But I should note here. This is what happened in the book of Ezra. The book right before Nehemiah. That when this work was to be done for God's people. By God's people. That there was this this rumor about this was being done to overthrow the power of the Persian king. This same king. So they're using the same tactic that they used in Ezra. And in Ezra the king shut it down. But here... It continues, there's a lesson for us here, for us in the church, that our enemy loves to slander, loves to accuse God's people. The devil is called the father of lies. He will resurrect sins from your past, which you do not need to listen to or hear, because Jesus paid for that. You have been set free from the bondage of shame and guilt from your past. And those chains have been set free and broken. So when the accuser accuses you of something that Jesus has set you free from, you rebuke him in the power and the name of Christ that the truth has set you free, that Jesus has brought you home. But he uses that to try to distract, to try to frighten us, to produce fear, to produce anxiety, Not only the enemy, though, but sometimes people, we, fall into that trap of slander and false accusation of another. That's why it is imperative for us as Christians that we are diligent in our pursuit of truth by grace. Nehemiah rejected the allegations in verse 8. Flat out rejected them. He's not even dignifying their lies by working within their warped view of the world, which, again, is everyone is out to get me. Because when you're in a place of power, find your identity in a place of power. That's how you see others. You don't champion the the celebration and the the success of others when you are bound to an identity in power. That's why we can never find our identity in power or in prestige. We find it in our humility in Christ. He won't even dignify these lies, nor should we. Nehemiah rejected the false interpretation of their world. And he went right on doing what God had called him to do. He wasn't going to be pulled away. He persevered, right? He addressed them only to dismiss them. And he continued to persevere through it to complete the work that was at hand. But then he goes on to help us understand the diagnosis of why, the motive behind the false accusation. It was to create fear frighten them so that they would stop working, that the workers would question at that point, what is your reasoning for doing this, Nehemiah? Why are you doing this? Yet those on the side of truth, like Nehemiah, respond and keep going. He kept the focus on God and God's work. He persevered through the intimidation and the slander. He believed God and God's call And God's leading. He persevered in the truth. And here's what I'll say. Perseverance in the truth will always shine the light on lies and falsehoods and slander. God's enemies will always try to discourage God's people. Perseverance in the truth, capital T, will always shine a light on that. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've had a moment or a season where that's happened. You understand what Nehemiah is doing here, but you're... You're learning as we are that we've got to keep persevering. And I don't don't want us to miss this. Another example, look at this at the end of verse 9. Another example of a godly person dependent upon a personal God. But now, O God, strengthen my hands. This was his refuge. God was his refuge. God was where where he found security and safety, where he found strength and he found comfort But now, God, strengthen my hands. Stand firm and pray. A consistent emphasis throughout our study of Nehemiah. He prayed and he took action. God, they wanted our hands to stop, to drop the tools, to stop doing your work. God, God, I know this is not true. You know this is not true. My heart, this is not true. Real. This is not accurate. God, now I need you to strengthen my hands here. In the thick of it all, Nehemiah cast himself upon God's strength. Strengthen my hands. There's an acknowledgement here for Nehemiah. An acknowledgement that we do well to learn. What's he acknowledged? His weakness. It's a self-awareness of, "I, I need your strength. We need your strength. When we think about Nehemiah, we usually don't think about a man who's weak. Every person of God needs a strength that we don't natively possess. So blessed are we who come to God with empty hands, with weak hands. Blessed are we who have nothing to bring to Him but empty and weak hands, who possess absolutely nothing but our own weakness and poverty in that. We're blessed. God works His great work through that. And it teaches us knowing we have to know our lack of strength. It teaches us not only to not depend on our own strength and self-sufficiency, but it teaches us to sing, The Lord is my strength. And if I could sing, I would have sung that line. The Lord is my strength. How often do you and I need to say that on a daily basis? The Lord is my strength. It, reached, it, it teaches us, as Nehemiah shows us, it teaches us to pray like he prayed, Strengthen my hands. That's how we persevere. That's how you and I run the race. That's how we fight the good fight till God brings us home. That's how we persevere. Here's the third lesson. Perseverance through deception. Look at verses 10 through 14. Verse 10, Now when I went into the house of Shemaiah, the son of Deliah, son of Mehedabel, who was confined to his home, he said, Let us meet together in a house of God within the temple. Let us close the doors of the temple, for they are coming to kill you. They are coming to kill you by night. But I said, Should such a man as I run away, and what man such as I could go into the temple and live? I will not go in. Verse twelve. And I understood and saw that God had not sent him, but he had pronounced the prophecy against me because Tobiah and Sanballat had hired him. For this purpose he was hired that I should be afraid and act in this way and sin. And so they could give me a bad name in order to taunt me. Verse 14, remember Tobiah and Samballat. oh my God. According to these things that they did, and also the prophets, Noadiah, and the rest of the prophets who wanted to make me afraid. So Tobiah and Samballot have now escalated it to the, to the point of deception we see perseverance through deception here they've went from distraction to false accusation now deception even using someone who was known or recognized as a prophet religious deception in that manner they've escalated it they've hired a prophet who falsely led Nehemiah to think his life was in imminent danger And so Shemaiah encouraged him to flee, but not just to flee, but to flee into the holy place of the temple. Which, when you read this, it seems odd just by reading the text, right? Because the first part we hear is that he was confined to his home, Shemaiah was. Yet he now says, let's run into the temple. Those two things don't go together for some reason. It felt like a red flag as soon as you read it. But Nehemiah responds in verse 11 that if he had done that, he would have lost his life. He says, what man such as I can go into the temple and live? See, Nehemiah wasn't in the priestly line. And if you weren't in the priestly line in God's family, you couldn't go into the holy of holies in the temple. Only they in the priestly line, the priests, could go in there. So he would have been guilty of breaking God's law. One commentator said, had Nehemiah tried to save himself in such a way, he would have lost possibly his life, certainly his honor, and would have jeopardized the very cause, the very work that he had at heart. He goes on to say, Nehemiah here shows a proper humility. Look at how he says it. What man such as I? It's a proper humility, it's self awareness again. Remember what we just read in verse 9? But, God, oh, but, oh, God, strengthen my hands. It's self-awareness. I need your strength, not in my strength. We see it happening here again. He is a, a man of God in his words. And, and he knows God's word because he knows the truth, right? He knows the rules. He knows he can't go in there. This commentator said he, was, he, had, he shows proper humility, a posture of humility that comes through a self-awareness of who he was and who God was, meaning that Nehemiah was a man who feared God more than he feared man. He has a true sense of the fear of God, which we talked about last week, taking God more serious than anything else. And it produces in us a freedom when we do that. That when we take God more serious than anyone or anything else, it produces a freedom. It produced a freedom in Nehemiah to know that, that whether someone was coming to kill me or not, which we now know was not true, he trusted that God would do what God needed to do. That's a freedom that Nehemiah has. Don't we want that? Where he can before God and man, he can accept limitations. What man such as I? And this freedom empowered perseverance. This freedom that he found in trusting God more than he trusted anything else. Empowered perseverance to stay focused, keep to the work that God had given, even in times of Deception. to the point that it went from let's have a meeting to come together to looks like you might be going to set up a kingdom to they're going to kill you. It escalated. But he trusts God. There's a freedom here. Listen, if someone tells us to do something that the Bible says not to do, that person does not speak for God. That's what happened with this prophet. And if you want to know what God speaks, you want to know what God's will is, Know the Bible. He has revealed it there. Evaluate all claims by Scripture. Nehemiah knew. And we get to verse 14 as we've watched him persevere through these attacks. And he again demonstrates his dependence on God in prayer. We've said Nehemiah is going to be marked as a man of prayer. And although this prayer seems pretty harsh, We have to understand this is a God-centered prayer, not one about Nehemiah. He understood this was a bigger attack than just on him. This was about stopping the work of God. They were trying to stop the work of God, the full work of God. And so Nehemiah turns that over to God. It's just something we do well to learn, too. Turn some of those battles over, turn them over to God. Let him handle them so that he could continue to persevere in finishing the work that God had called him to do to begin with. We have something that we say around here, and that's simply to be faithful and leave the consequences to God. Try to remind ourselves of that. Perseverance. Only by the grace of God and His Spirit. Don't give up, run the race, fight the good fight. Faith, take hold of the eternal life. It reminded me in the New Testament of Romans chapter 8, and we'll finish with this, as you and I learn to persevere, to continue. Paul writes to us in Romans 8, verses 31 through 39. Listen very carefully. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, as it is written, for you, for your sake, we are all being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, Father, we need to persevere. There are valleys There is darkness. There is heartache. There is distraction. There is attack. There is threat. There is uncertainty. There is doubt. There is confusion. There is slander. There is lies. There is a lot of things that each of us walk through, deal with, experience throughout our time here. And God, we know from the truth and power of your word and by the resurrection of Jesus that there is a strength within us to empower us to persevere through it all. That your spirit would stir. That your spirit would, sh- would strengthen and produce a refuge and a stronghold within us. To not get off course. To not be swayed. To not drift. To not be stopped. To not, to not put the tools down simply to get on our face before you to, sh- to, to cry out to scream to, to call out to strengthen our hands to continue to persevere to run the race that nothing would, would move us off of sinner, and for the things that have God forgive us have mercy on us as we confess those things and and God, simply move us back into the center where our eyes, our heart, our mind, everything about us is on Christ. Just like Nehemiah, he understood who he was inside of you. God, give us that that same eyesight that we understand who we are inside of you. Let's have the freedom that comes from from taking you serious, from taking you as the supreme treasure and the almighty, holy, just, merciful, loving God, that it empowers us to keep going. And as Paul teaches us in Romans 8, we might be pressed, we're never, never, ever crushed. I pray that for those who don't have that hope. God, if they're watching or here in this room, God, let them find that hope in Christ as they repent, as they come home to Him, as they ask forgiveness, believe in Him as Your Son and our Savior, the only one. As they transfer the trust off themselves, recognizing that they can't get to You on their own, may they put it on Christ who has provided the way. I bring them home so that they too have that same promise that no matter what, we're coming home to you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.